Hey, welcome to the Vision Church Podcast. We are glad you're joining us today. This past Sunday was Easter, and it was an amazing time. We talked about the question that Jesus asked his disciples. He said, who do men say that I am? And they answered that question, and then Jesus asked them, but who do you say that I am? And so that's the question we have for you this morning is who do you say that he is in your circumstances and your situation and the things that you face? Who do you say that he is? So man, grab your Bible and set your heart to hear from heaven. Let's listen in. Hey, I am so excited and thankful to have my good friend, our good friends, uh, Jim and Marsha Reason with us from uh, we met them in Dallas, Texas. We met them, we met you guys 28 years ago. Wow. Well, it was 26 years ago. Yeah, Becca. We were pregnant with Becca. Anyway, so we're just glad you guys were able to be with us. Could you stand up with me this morning? I just want to pray as we get started. And plus, we want to get the blood flowing in you. You know, that's why we have you come out and step up and sit down. So, you know, don't want you to fall asleep. Um, anyway. How many of you, this is your first time to Vision Church, you've never been to Vision Church before? Man, it is so, we are glad to see you guys. We're just glad that you were able to come. Hey, here's what I like to do at Vision before we get started. Would you just take your hands like this, stick them on your heart, and then repeat this after me. Let's pray this out loud together. Heavenly Father, I am asking you this morning for ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart to receive exactly what you have for me. If you believe it, say amen this morning. Amen. God bless you. You can be seated. And again, I am so glad that you're here with us this morning. Um, You know, I've seen a lot of Easter memes. How many of you guys have seen a lot of Easter memes out there? And uh, one of them I saw was Jesus and his disciples going into a restaurant, and he said, I need a table for 26. And the, and the waiter counted and said, wait a minute, you've only got 13. And he said, yeah, but we're all going to sit on the same side. Do we need to pray again? I was, yeah. Well, why don't we do better than that? Why don't you just open your Bible to Matthew 16? Come on, Matthew 16. You guys left me all alone on that one, didn't you? It's all good. Yeah. I guess I thought it was funnier, personally. So, all right, you're there in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus asks his disciples an interesting question in Matthew chapter 16. In verse 13, it says that Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, thank you. And he asked his disciples this question. He said, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? And some said, well, some say that you're John the Baptist. Others say Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But then Jesus turns to his disciples and he says this question. But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus answered him. He said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. He hadn't named him Peter yet, by the way. He said, blessed are you because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. But my Father, who is in heaven, he's the one that revealed it to you. You know, I wanted to make a profession, confession to you this morning. My name is Phil Johnson, and I'm a Christian. I, I, 
what does that mean to you? What does that mean to you this Easter when you think about it? You know, because I, I don't know about you. When I was born again at the age of six years old, I was basically born again because I was scared of hell. I didn't want to go to hell. I think it's the very base level of faith is I don't want to go to hell. You know, I mean, I've heard, I, I, I've been raised in the Methodist church when I was young, and they taught us in Sunday school that there was a heaven, and then there was this other place called hell, and it was a, it was a place of terrible torment. <clears throat> but being saved, accepting Jesus as my Savior and, and living for him are, are two different things. I can come to the front and I can pray a prayer and I can ask Jesus to come into my heart. And we like to call that the sinner's prayer. But the, de the very definition of the word Christian, when you say your name and then you say, and I'm a Christian, that has a whole different connotation to it. What that means is that I am now, I have put off myself and I'm becoming Christ-like, like Christ. That means I, I, I'm, I'm going to live for him. I'm not only going to live for him, I'm going to imitate the way that he lived. And I'm not just going to, you know, pray a prayer so I can feel better, get the monkey off my back, and then I can go back to living the way that I want to live. Billy Graham even said this. He said, the cross demands change. That when we come to the cross, there's, there's a change that has to happen. It's not good enough for me to just say, you know, uh, I, I did that church thing. I tried Christianity. Christianity isn't something you try, by the way. <laughs> I mean, it's something that you jump in the pool. You know, have you ever, you know, you go to, you go to the pool, that first swim when the pool's kind of cold? How many of you are the kind of people you just kind of dip your foot in, kind of ease in? All right, I got some easers in. That's, I get it. I get it. I like to just jump off the board. Man, let's just get the nightmare over with. You know, you're going to turn into a giant goose pimple anyway. But, you know, you swim around a little bit, you get used to it more quickly, I think. <laughs> I think. So, but let me ask you a question. How did Peter know the answer to this question that Jesus asked? How did he know that answer? You are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. That answer can only come by an inward revelation, that you know who he is. It comes by revelation. And that's what happened to Peter because it doesn't matter who others say it is, but it does matter who do you say that Jesus is. Who do you say that he is in your life? <clears throat> so I'm a Christian. Man, I remember, I remember when I was... Um, Growing up, and somebody had given me a, a, an NIV Bible, New International Version. And what I appreciate about the NIV is it's real easy to understand. You know, I, I appreciate the King James. I'm a King James fan. But, it, it, you know, in 2011, we celebrated 400 years of the King James Version. 400 years. So that was the way they talked in England 400 years ago. You know, and so... I, when, I was, when I was learning to read the Bible, I'd come to a place in myself where I thought, you know, 
mom and dad, this Christian stuff is great for mom and dad, but I want to find out what do I believe and why do I believe it? And so you know what I begin to do? I begin to really dig into this NIV. And man, I begin to read and I discovered who Jesus was and I discovered that I could have my own relationship with God. And it wasn't based on my parents. It wasn't because I said so, but I actually had the answers to the why for my own life. And I think some people don't come to a place personally where they do that where they really take the time to establish, what do I believe? I know what you believe, but what do I believe for myself? And when I did that, man, what a difference it made. And and maybe you're in here and you go, well, Phil, I don't believe that. Yeah, okay. You have the right to believe what you want to believe, but what if it's true? I mean, if if it's not true, then I've still lived a, a, a great life man, I've, I've, I've tried to serve God with everything within me. But if it is true, I, I wouldn't want to be in your shoes. Man. <clears throat> so, do you know why some people believe the way that they believe? Some people believe the way that they believe because they don't want to hear another thought, another opinion. I'm settled in what what I've been raised in, and I, I don't want to know the truth about that because then uh, I have to adjust what I believe so that it encompasses this over here. Let me put it another way. Have you ever been lied about and you found out about it? And then you tried to set maybe a, a person straight, tried to help them understand what the truth is. I remember one time my wife and I were lied about and we were at a store and when we were coming out of the store, we ran into a person that we knew was one of the people that had been lied to. And so my wife, right away, she tried to communicate with him and tell him the truth. And I could tell just by looking at him, he was not interested in knowing our side of the story. That he had come to a conclusion that he was satisfied with. And he didn't want to know our side of the truth. Doesn't the Bible say that one side sounds right until you hear the other? Hmm. So I want to ask you this morning, don't cancel me this morning, okay? Don't be a part of that cancel culture. Because I want to give you some things that changed everything for me. I want to give you some ideas, some thoughts, every, what changed everything for me. One of the things that I learned that changed everything for me was my heart. I had to have a willing heart. So what's the condition of your heart? Are you like some people that they're not open to hearing the other side? You're not open to hearing what the Bible has to say about different topics? We, we knew this neighbor that she would go to church every Sunday until they did a series on living with your boyfriend. And she didn't want to go. And I know why she didn't want to go, because she was living with her boyfriend. She didn't, want to hear, she didn't want to hear that side of the story. So turn over to Matthew 13. I want, to, I want to look at a few things here, because the way, the condition that your heart is in this morning is important, because your heart is fertile soil. It's either fertile soil or it's another type of soil. 
And we read about it in Matthew 13. In fact, Jesus talks about the different types of soil. One, one type of soil that he talks about is the pathway soil. This is hard soil. That another One translation calls it wayside soil. This is the pathway that everybody walks down, so it gets mashed down. And so the, the seed has difficulty breaking through to get into the soil so it can grow. And Jesus said that the, this type of person is the person who hears the message but doesn't understand it. And so the enemy is like a bird. All he has to do is sweep down and just pick the seed up, up from it and take it away. And then Jesus talked about rocky soil, or I, I call it gravel. This is that soil that has all these rocks around it. This is the person that hears the message, but when troubles come, persecution come, because they have no depth in the word of God, they're easily shaken from it. Does it take a little, just a little persecution to shake you off what you believe? Do you believe in healing until you get sick? I mean, do you? Do you, do, you, do you believe in faith until you're, until you're faced with something that you really have to believe God for and stand for a long time for it? <clears throat> I could tell you stories, but I feel like I'm supposed to move on. Uh, uh, verse 22, he talked about thorny soil. Now, actually, these are, this is soil that thorns are already growing in. And the seed that falls there, this is what that person's like. He's the person that hears the message, but when troubles and persecutions come, he quickly falls away uh, for the truth didn't sink deeply into his heart. So he falls away. Oh, I thought I was on thorny soil, sorry. Life's distractions, uh, a divided heart, ambition for wealth, all of this chokes the message and it becomes fruitless. You've got other things that are higher priority. And then 23, verse 23 talks about good, rich soil. The one who hears fully and fully embraces the message of the kingdom. Their lives bear good fruit. Some yield a harvest of 30, 60, and even 100 times what was sown. Wow. That's productive. That's a person whose heart is open. A person that the word of God can come deep into their heart and it can reap an abundant harvest in their life. So that's the first thing. What changed everything for me was a willing heart. The second thing was prayer. Turn over to uh, John 18. John 18. We'll talk for a moment about prayer. <clears throat> this is an interesting um, part of the story of Jesus' life because they've just come out of the Last Supper. They ate together just like we did. They ate bread together. They drank wine together and, and, uh, and they did communion. And then Jesus said, you know, he began to talk about betrayal. He began to talk about the importance of the father's love. And then they left that room. They left the upper room and they went out through the Kidron Valley. The Kidron Valley was this ravine. And this was a pathway that people would leave Jerusalem and go out of the city. And so when they left, they're walking through this valley. Interesting thing about the Kidron Valley is this is the same valley that David walked through when he was running for his life from Absalom. He took his entire family and they abandoned the city and they walked through this valley. And David walks through this valley in tears, you know, and all of them are crying over, you know, what's going on. He, I'm sure, is crying over Absalom. But they're leaving to save he and his entire family. Jesus is coming through the same valley with, a, with a, a heart of sorrow 
because he realizes what he's about to do, and he's going to save the world. And so they walked through the Kidron Valley, and, they, and there was a garden at the base of it, the Garden of Gethsemane. And so he brings his disciples to the garden, uh, all of them except Judas, because remember Judas at dinner, he left early. He went to go betray Jesus. And so they walk, they go into this garden, and Jesus tells the disciples, he says, listen, uh, you guys pray right here. I'm going to go a little further, and I'm going to pray over there. He said, I'm asking you to pray with me. And that word Gethsemane means olive press or, or place of pressing. And this is where Jesus is going to be pressed. He's going to be pressed by betrayal, pressed by the pain and the suffering that he's about to endure physically, paying for your, your, uh, your sin and mine, right? And what he's going to experience in separation from his father. So he's going to be pressed on every side. And so he begins to pray, and he prays, and he prays, but then he comes back to his disciples in John 18, in verse, um, you know what, looking, I had you turn to John 18, I'm going to read to you what Jesus said, this is in Matthew 26, actually, verse 40, it says that, that he came back to the disciples, found that they're sleeping, and he said, what, could you not watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation, the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. I want to encourage you in something. There's something about praying one hour. There's something about it. When I began to seek God and begin to pray about, you know, what God was doing in our life as we begin to travel on the road, this was about six or seven years ago, and I really began to commit to get up every morning. I always had a time of prayer, but it wasn't an hour long. And I thought, you know, Lord, I really need to hear from heaven. I want to come to a place where I'll hear clearly from you. And I began to pray. And as an hour would go by, as all this time would go by, and you'd reach 15 minutes, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, then it no longer began to be about the time, but it began about, to be about hearing from heaven. And God began to speak to my heart. I began to hear clearly from him. There's something about an hour. Otherwise, why would Jesus say, could you not watch with me for one hour? Man, it's encouraging. But there's something about that. So the other thing that changed it for me was complete surrender. Complete surrender. When I actually surrendered my plans to his, that was when we saw a huge change in what God was doing in our life and in our ministry. You know, it's, it's, easy, it's easy to have your own plans, put your own ideas together, decide what you're going to do, go out and do it. But it's different when you submit yourself to God's plans. God, what do you want me to do? And it was that time, and I remember when, in prayer, when I laid down and I had so many different things going on, and I, you know, and I thought, well, I've got some talent over here, I can do this, I've got some ability over here, I could do this, but you know what, God, I'm going to lay it all down. I want to know, what is it that you want me to do? And do you know that he took me in a completely different direction? It was opposite everything that I'd ever done. And he began to open doors for us. We began to travel full time and we began to minister all across the United States. And then God brought us here. And I had no idea what God was going to do. It was amazing.
So back to the story. Judas, you remember, he knew where this garden was. And you know, when Jesus, you know, is there praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, Judas went to the high priest. So this garden is a place of intimacy. This is a place where they've come many times. This is where Jesus has met with his disciples and he's talked with them. He's shared, uh, he's shared principles from the kingdom of heaven with them. And so Judas comes with all of these men. Now, one translation and scholars believe that it was a lot of men that he came with with clubs and with spears and with torches and somewhere in the neighborhood of six to 700, I heard one guy say, and I thought, you know, that makes a lot of sense because they were afraid. They were afraid of an uprising. They were afraid of Jesus. What, you know, what he, he was able to do all these miracles. They weren't sure what was going to happen. And so Judas shows up and isn't that what betrayal does? It, betrayal knows where your intimate place is. It knows where, you know, you spend your closest moment with your closest friends because it's usually those who are closest to you that are betraying you, right? And so here comes Judas, and Judas walks in there, and, you know, Judas is the story of humanity, greed, right? He betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Well, let's go back for a moment because there's a fourth century priest that did the same thing. They were betraying the common man by selling indulgences. You know, this Bible was translated years and years ago. There's been many different translators who have translated the Bible. And we know about Tyndale. We know about, um, you know, Luther. And we know about Jerome. We know about all different translators, but one translator's name maybe isn't as um, well-known, and his name was Erasmus. Erasmus was an interesting guy. He, many of the translators were Catholic priests because it was only the priests that could study, that could learn Latin, and they could even read the Bible. The common man couldn't read the Bible. And so, uh, so what had happened was these priests had all this power because the people looked to the priest to interpret and translate what, what is the Bible saying. And so it really put them in a place of power. And so all you have to do to find out what somebody's character is, is put, give them some power, right? And so, the, so these priests started selling indulgences. Now, let me tell you what selling indulgences is. That's where you get to pay to sin. You know, that, that if you commit this sin, then you could pay X number of dollars and you'd be forgiven that sin. You could pay more money and you could be forgiven for a greater sin. You, you could kill someone. You could kill a layman and pay X number of dollars and you could be forgiven for that sin. A priest could have concubines on the side and pay money to be forgiven for that. In fact, let me tell you about the ring of prostitution that was going on at that time. 150,000 prostitutes on payroll with the church during this time. Indulgences. But money was pouring into the Roman Catholic Church. Well, Erasmus had more character than he had greed. Thank God. And so he decided, I'm going to translate the Bible so that the common man can see the deception between what the, how the priests are translating the Latin Vulgate and what the Bible actually says. And so he translated the Bible into the common man's language, into English. And when he translated it, he also put it side by side with the Latin Vulgate. Well, you know what happened? They saw the deception. And these men 
began to say, oh man, you know, we're not giving any more money to the Catholic Church. They're not going to, they're not going to steal our money, you know. (laughs) And he broke the deception. Well, isn't that what Jesus did? Jesus came and he broke the deception over people's lives. And then Judas, it says in verse 3, Judas, having received a a detachment of troops, here he comes. And Jesus steps forward. He sees him coming. And Jesus says this, whom are you seeking? And they answered, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. And when he said that, it says that they drew, they fell backwards when Jesus said that. Now, this goes back to translation because it says, I am he. If you read the New King James Version, the I am is is one way, but the he is italicized. And that means it wasn't in the original text that it was added for clarification. So because it's Jesus answering the question, they're asking, he's asking, who did you come for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he's saying, I am he. Well, how many of you know it's a pretty big difference to say, I am he, and to say, I am. You remember Moses? Remember at the burning bush? Moses said, Lord, if I come to the children of Israel, who do I say sent me? What's your name? How am I going to tell them who you are? And he said, tell them I am sent you. Isn't that interesting? I am. See, William Tyndale, who, who translated the New Testament actually into, into modern English of the time. This was all those years ago. When he did, when he translated the Bible, it talks about how he was, he, he, I mean, it was so difficult for him to translate each word in each sentence. So he's not only changing languages, he's translating from, from Greek into modern day English, but but Tyndale was, was no shy scholar. He spoke eight different languages. And, and he spoke them so fluently, people thought that was his native language. I mean, that's how, that's how fluent he was. And so he said, it says that he painstakingly went over each verse, each word, to try and make sure that it was the most genuine translation that he could find between Greek and modern day English. He even would throw his windows open and listen to how the street people talked in everyday conversation so that he could take what they said and incorporate it so it made sense. Does that make, does that make sense? And so, so this, is what, this is the way that he translated. But an interesting thing about him translating is, is this. As much as he painstakingly went through all that, and later he was burned at the stake, he was arrested. Um, they, they sent a spy in and, and, and really took advantage of him. And, and he was burned at the stake. He prayed at the stake, oh Lord, open the eyes of the King of England. You know? And God answered his prayer because King Henry VIII then commissioned the Bible to be translated into modern day English. And interesting thing, they pulled together all of these scholars, 50 different scholars, and they were all fluent in Greek, in Hebrew, and they began to translate. Do you know that they used 90% of Tyndale's translation? That's how solid it was. Well, the reason I bring this up is sometimes I hear people, 
Well, let me say it this way. Let me, let me put it in first person here. I, I can't criticize translations of the Bible because I've never taken it upon myself to even try to translate. And, and I'm thankful for the NIV. I'm thankful for the, the, the CEV. I'm thankful for the NLT. I'm thankful for all these different translations who have made it easier for me to understand what the Bible is saying. And because in the Greek, same as the English, <clears throat> there's certain words that you can use this same word and it will work in this sentence and it will mean this, but then you can also use that same word over here and it will mean something different in another sentence. And so Tyndale was really struggling with that. And so when I see stuff like I am he, in italicize, it makes me appreciate the sacrifice that was made so that I can read the Bible. Doesn't it you? So let's go back to I am. Jesus said, I am. If you're struggling in here this morning in your marriage, in your relationships, your relationship with your spouse is tense, Jesus is saying, I am the resurrector of relationships. See, I am is the answer to every prayer you'll ever have. It's the answer to every question you'll ever have. Jesus is I am. If your relationship with your kid, your teenager is strained right now and you're saying, God, I just want it to be better. Guess what? Jesus, he's the restorer of relationships. He's the connection for you. Maybe you're dealing with a disease in your body and there's been something going on physically and you're saying, man, uh, the doctors have done everything that they know to do. I don't know what else to do. You're in a good place because I am is your answer. He's your healer. He took every sickness, every disease on his body on the cross so that you could be healed. I am. But my question for you this morning is, who do you say he is? I feel I love God. I don't doubt it. I don't doubt it at all. But when their chips are down, when there's something going on, when there's a circumstance, a situation, something you're facing, who do you turn to? Who do you turn to? Thanks for listening to this week's message. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud. Just search Vision Church. If you would like to help support this ministry, you can do so at visionnwa.com forward slash give.